Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Welcome to the 20th week of these uh, services that we film on a Friday night and then have uh, some time then to edit and then Zach gets them ready for us to broadcast 10.30 on Sunday mornings. That actually is all going to come to an end though after the month of August. You'll hear more about this in the announcements later from Aaron Bowler. Jack, we are starting the, the first Sunday in September. We are going to be live streaming and so we will be back in this space, this space so important to so many of us, at 10.30 on Sunday mornings. But we will continue to have a, 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 uh, an, uh, a screened version of this, a digital version of this for you to, to see at home. If you still can't make it here, that's totally fine. And so we have some folks who are watching and are going to be a part of our fellowship who are living out of town. We will still have something for them, for their screens at 10.30. Uh, but we will have this space open we will still uh, honor all of those safety protocols, but starting the first Sunday in September, we'll be back in here for live stream service at 10.30 on Sunday mornings. We are in uh, the, uh, this incredible series called Uncommon Time, and we are still working with this Karl Barth quote, you take your Bible and you take your newspaper and read them both, but please, please interpret the newspapers from your Bible. So I'm wondering how we interpreted this story, Dateline, Oklahoma City, actually is happening even as we speak. We are sorting through this. This is the Oklahoma County Jail, and just last night, it seems, someone or maybe even two someones broke out of county jail. They actually strung, well, I guess it was bed sheets or something together, and they scaled down the walls of the county jail from the 12th floor. Now, I'm going to ask you, what are, what are the emotions that are at work now in your mind and heart as you receive this story? Are you upset at the jail or the jailers who somehow missed something? Are you uh, maybe a little unsettled and maybe feel a little bit less safe because now we've got people roaming the streets who ought to be in the jail? By the way, they did catch one of them. The second one's still on the loose, though. Or are you, is there any place in your heart where you're concerned about the person who is dangling 12 stories up from the concrete? <laughs> That's somebody's kid who is dangling 12 stories up. This is what we're going to be talking about today. Um... When do we stop aching for the other? Now, other today is going to be quite the loaded term, quite the loaded term, but you need to know what I'm talking about when I say the other. Right now, I want to say this. Do you find yourself um, not aching for the other when the other is absolutely wrong? They've had their chance. They need to now pay their price. So they're no longer my problem. This is part of the reason, actually, that I got involved in the criminal justice uh, reform movement here in Oklahoma State, in, in Oklahoma County, Oklahoma City, largely because uh, I knew people who were in the jail who were not treated humanely, and, and I see some of the, the, the patterns of bad behavior and even abuse that I want to be a part of reforming one way or another, but it's also because I was concerned of, uh, about how many churches, how many Christians, how many pastors, you've heard me say this all before, we've got in this city and state, and God be praised, we've got so many churches and so many pastors, and yet we have so many people in, behind bars. 
I heard uh, today that we have been the number one in terms of percentage of our population, the number one incarcerator of women for 30 years. For 30 years. And yet we are this, this Christian city, county, and state. But sometimes what that has meant is, listen, uh, we will have great love for you until you misbehave, until you think wrongly, until, until you act uh, until you misbehave, you act poorly, until you choose unwisely, and then once we put you behind those bars, we kind of stop thinking about you, and that's what the jail looks like at times. Our system of criminal justice sometimes looks like we have put people somewhere, having subtracted their dignity, having subtracted their worth, we put them away some way, somewhere so that we no longer have to think about them, where in this entire system is the mercy. That's my role. In the criminal justice reform system, my role is to walk around and ask anybody who will listen, where is the mercy in our system? Where is it? Because that's where the Christians come in. We are the mercy bringers. Where is the mercy? Bad things happen when you subtract the dignity and the humanity from the other person. Bad things happen. It's only a matter of time before there is violence. When you subtract the dignity and the humanity from the other no matter who that other might be, it's not too many steps from there to violence. And i tell you where throughout history we have seen this. Anti-Semitism. The term, if you're not familiar with it, describes um, bad behavior toward the Jewish people, Semitic peoples. Sometimes it has been Christians who have actually perpetrated this bad behavior. Sometimes it is believers who have themselves said, wait a minute, they've had their chance. They have missed their opportunity. They deserve what they're going to get. And history then tells the story of what happens when you subtract the dignity, the humanity from a group of people. I'm telling you, violence is not far behind. It actually showed up in the news this week, actually. Wes, why don't you advance us that next slide there? We saw a little anti-Semitism in the news not too long ago. There was a rapper by the name of Wiley who wrote a series of anti-Semitic tweets in which he compared the Jews to the Ku Klux Klan, even called them snakes, and Great Britain sort of erupted, erupted. Wiley's career probably has seen its best days. But you don't have to go all the way to Great Britain to see or to hear stories of anti-Semitism. Take a look at this next slide there, Wes. There is in town uh, a temple, Temple B'nai, Temple B'nai Israel. And Temple B'nai Israel is led by Rabbi Vered Harris. And Rabbi Harris has come to be one of my friends. And, and not too long ago, we hosted a Minister's Alliance meeting here, and we had folks from all different uh, stripes and denominations, and Rabbi Harris was here, and we asked her, what is it like to be Jewish here in Oklahoma City, in the belt buckle of the Bible belt? What's it like? And she had some pretty sobering things to say. For example, she said, did you know that if you preach or teach the parable of the Good Samaritan poorly, poorly, you can put Jewish people in danger? Now think about that for a second. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember, the Good Samaritan is the one at the very end who does the right thing. But prior to that, it's the priest and the Levite who do the bad thing, who do the wrong thing. And somehow there are people who hear that and interpret that parable in ways that allow them to subtract the dignity and the humanity 
from Jewish folks. It got so bad that Rabbi Harris had to take her daughter out of Edmond Public Schools and bring her home and teach her because time after time she would come home with stories about how people were ugly to her, hateful to her. At times she felt like she was endangered because she was Jewish. Anti-Semitism. Christians aren't anti-Semitic. Uh, let, me, let me say that again. Christians, Christians cannot be anti-Semitic. For one, Jesus was Jewish. We, as Christians, owe everything, everything to this story that we see unfolded in the pages of the Old Testament Scriptures. If you haven't already taken Jason's class and disciple, you need to take it because that's where you can see, unfold right before your very eyes, how all of these stories demonstrate a moving plot line that result in our Savior. But God is already at work redeeming and restoring way back when. It just results and culminates in Christ. Christians cannot be, cannot be anti-Semitic. In fact, check your heart. Check your heart. What is it that you feel for folks, Jewish or otherwise, who deeply, deeply disagree with perhaps tenets of faith that you hold most dear? Now we're again back to the struggle that Paul was seeing take place and unfold before his very eyes there in Rome. As you have heard us say, all of us who have preached from this platform about this particular backdrop, the Jews who had been expelled, kicked out of Rome, are now coming back, once thought to be a threat, and in fact, they were still sort of understood to be, a, I mean, Rome still had sort of looked out of them through the side of their eyes, like, I'm not sure about these Jewish folks. There was great tension now between these Christians who had moved into some of these spaces while the Jews were gone, and these Jews who came back. There was great potential here for anti-Semitism amongst the earliest church members. And Paul is trying to say something, yes, about anti-Semitism. We can't be anti-Semitic. But Paul is also saying something about how we understand and regard and receive the other. Today's question is simple. How much does the other mean, the other, the total other mean to you, to me, to us. And today, the other will be played by those whom you and I, we might consider to be the unbelieving, the unenlightened, the uninformed, the misinformed, the dangerously misinformed, the anti-what-I-think-is-right-and-sane-and-Christian folks. I want to remind us of this fact. We have the capacity as human beings to slowly but surely subtract the dignity of the other when they fit one of those other categories. And over a period of time, as we continue to subtract the dignity from those who are in that other category, the other is in danger of losing his or her humanity in our eyes, my eyes. And it may be lots of steps between here and there, but I don't think it's overly dramatic to say that thoughts of violence start with the loss of another's dignity or humanity. Just look around. 
Again, I'm sorry. I'm not going to pound you today about Facebook, right? I'm still disappointed by some of what I see out there. I want to ask you a harder question, though. What's beneath all of that? What is beneath all of that that somehow then finally manifests as, well, I'm going to type this out, bang, post. What's underneath all of that? How do you feel about the other with whom you deeply, deeply, deeply disagree? How do you feel down deep about the other about the other who believes something that is so contrary to your beliefs that you find him or her or them to be dangerous, poisonous even. There is danger right there. If somehow there's a group of people that you find to be so dangerous that you understand them to be poisonous and worthy of the subtraction of dignity or humanity, I have two things to say to you. One, that is not a gear that Jesus has. Two, who are you? The role of the Christian is to be, yes, hospitable. We say that a lot. But here's the term that we need to hear today. The role of the Christian is to be merciful. Merciful. Are you merciful toward anybody these days? Who, who understands you to be merciful today? Who understands me to be merciful today? I promise you. Quarantine gives a guy a lot of time to sit around and think and ponder and study the scripture for the, t- for the sermon he's going to preach up front. Uh, This has been a tough one for me this week. I am, in fact, again, doing my own therapy up here. I I need to ask myself, who understands me to be merciful? Now, think this through with me. The person who agrees with me on everything, the person who likes me, the person that I like, does not really need to understand me as merciful, does not need to experience me as merciful. But the one who may understand himself or herself as my mortal enemy, I need that person to experience Christ in and through me. I need that person to experience in and through me mercy. Paul has something to say to us today, sure about love. Every week it could be about love, divine love. But today, Paul has something to say to us about mercy. Those of us, again, those of us who want to wear the t-shirts, I will ask you and I will ask me this question. I'm gonna use it like a refrain throughout. Who understands us? Who understands each of us, all of us, to be merciful? Who in your life understands you to be merciful? The answer can't be no one. No one. And since it's not likely that your closest allies, your best friends, will ever really need to experience you as merciful, that leaves the other, the dangerous, wrong-headed, misbehaving, unenlightened, other. (laughs) Who have you othered? Who have you othered? Well, that's the person who at some point needs to understand you to be a person of mercy. And perhaps none of our biblical writers understand this more than the Apostle Paul. Go ahead, Wes, next slide. In fact, go to that Romans 8 slide. There we go. Paul says this, you remember this from last week's sermon, the, uh, the now infamous backyard sermon by the, uh, the table. 
These were the last words. I am convinced that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the highest of all the high notes in the book of Romans. This, this is the fulcrum, the tipping point here. God wants to show in and through Christ God's real heart, and not just toward the folks who are like us or the folks who like us, but all the folks, all the folks. All of this grace is available to everyone. All of this grace is available, but it is not forced on anyone. Grace available to everyone, but not forced on anyone. And in this painfully ironic turn, the very birth family of the Messiah, the Jewish people refuse both the Messiah and the Messiah's gifts, and Paul is heartbroken heartbroken. Even though they are sworn enemies, now it's not that Paul has labeled them as enemies, but they, the Jewish folks, many of them had labeled Paul as an enemy of the Jewish faith, and yet Paul aches for them. Next slide, Wes. This is where these words come in that Tim read for us earlier. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Next slide. And it says here, for I could wish that I myself were accursed. It could have been translated like this. I have been praying that I myself could be accursed and somehow trade my life for all of their lives. My future and my eternity for all of theirs. We say this a lot around here, and we're right to say it. You look at God, you look at Christ, you look at yourself, and you confess the difference. As it has to do with how you treat your other and how Paul is treating Paul's others, perhaps tonight would be a good time to look at oneself and look at Paul and to measure the difference in your capacity, my capacity, and Paul's capacity to be merciful. Merciful. Paul says literally that he would, trade, he would trade his place of favor for their salvation. He would expect curse and condemnation if it meant that his wrong-headed enemies, his own people, <laughs> could be salvaged and welcome. Next verse. As if he's trying to teach Jason's class, he says, look, this is our story. They are absolutely essential actors and players in this incredible story. All of the gifts and all of the good stuff came to them first. There is no us without them. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs like Abraham, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. Mercy, mercy. Now you know they would try to hurt him and kill him, right? Mercy. You know they understood him uh, to be a heretic, right? Mercy, mercy. How does Paul arrive at this place of mercy? Well, I I do have an idea. I think one becomes a person of mercy 
when one is honest with oneself to recognize how it is that God has been merciful. So Paul, formerly Saul, was once one of those who rejected Christ as the long-hoped-for Messiah. He was an enemy of the Christian faith, so much so that he participated in the persecution of the church and even held the cults while they stoned Stephen to death. So what did Saul at that time, what did Saul deserve? The better question is, what did he get? He got mercy. And a name change. So Saul, now Paul, having been shown life-changing mercy, now demonstrates that same mercy as he aches for his own people, some of whom will persecute Paul physically and violently. It makes no sense in our scorekeeping world. And sadly, it makes very little sense in the modern-day church. Today's church all too often suffers the same disease our ancestors, these Gentiles in the church of Rome, suffered good riddance. What do you feel for the bad people? What does your heart feel for the people who are just sort of wrong? (laughs) What is your disposition, your posture for folks who maybe today make you sick? Like, make you sick. Maybe they gross you out. Maybe they infuriate you. Why? Because they do what they do. They say what they say, and they believe what they believe. And it's so different from me, I don't even know how to relate. How, how, what is it that you feel for him, for her, for them? The better question is, how do we get from whatever that is all the way to mercy? You see, the Gentiles... Sort of the Johnny-come-latelys where Christian faith was concerned. The Gentiles in the church in Rome, it was Paul's estimation that the Gentiles there in the church in the Rome no longer cared about these Jewish folks. They'd had their opportunity. They chose poorly. Good riddance. Those are Paul's family members. Those are Paul's people. More importantly, those are people And Paul knows the heart of God. He knows it intimately. He knows it personally. God in Christ comes and gets Saul, makes him Paul, in the midst of his sin and wrongness. And God in God's mercy does not exact a penalty, does not exact vengeance. Gives him hope and life and future. He's merciful to Saul who would become Paul. But again, it was Paul's estimation that these Gentiles in the early church here in Rome, they were not necessarily merciful. <laughs> where Paul's ancestors and where his kinfolk, where his kindred are concerned. Guys, you know what we are? We are Gentiles. <laughs> we are Gentiles. We are adopted in to the family of faith. Those who are adopted into the family of faith cannot afford to then hold too tightly all of the gifts and the graces so as to exclude the others. 
I mean, I need to ask you, do we feel the same way? Or maybe there are some saints among us, and I would love to get there myself. Maybe there are saints among us who genuinely ache for those who do not yet know Christ the hope. In my discussion with Dr. Tashton, and I have one every week, and I'm so grateful for it, he reminded me that not too long ago, we said a lot of words about evangelism. A lot of words about evangelism. Let me say a couple more things about evangelism. So first of all, hear me say that it's the right thing. And the people of God need to be busy, busy, trying to help and rescue and salvage all that we can help and rescue and salvage, all of the people, no matter where we find them. And, and we do that by saying, hey, this Jesus character has won the day, love has won the day, and there's a new way of life available to us. Would you please join us <laughs> in chasing around this Jesus who has for so long been chasing us? You will not be an effective evangelist, however, if you understand these targets of your evangelism to be other in dangerous, ugly, prejudicial sorts of ways. Who breaks your heart? Who whom do you worry about? Is the life and the future, present day life, eternal life of your neighbor, does it matter to you? Or does your neighbor just drive you nuts? Because your neighbor is other. Your neighbor has the wrong sign in his yard, for heaven's sake. Your neighbor makes way too much noise. Your neighbor doesn't believe what you believe. Does your neighbor understand you to be merciful? Now, Paul really does believe, Paul really does believe that those who do not understand Christ as the Messiah, the long-waited-for, hoped-for Messiah, Paul really does believe that folks who do not understand this Jesus as the Messiah cannot and will not participate in the kingdom now or the kingdom to come. He just does. And so he is anguished for his people. It struck me this week as I was studying this that I may not have that same anguish for people who fit that same category, who do not yet know Christ as Lord, Lord and Savior. I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone. How do you feel about the folks in your arm's reach, in your neighborhood, who do not yet understand Christ the hope? How do they estimate you as you are estimating them, him, her? Do you, do we, do I have the right heart posture where unbelievers are concerned? Do we have work to do? I know I do. Let's get back to this Jesus. Christ is the embodiment of the mercy of God, which makes 
Christ, where mercy is concerned, our aspiration. In other words, and this is a mouthful, stay with me. God makes it all the way to us does more of the work than we'll ever do, does all of the heavy lifting, asks us to come and participate in the heart of God, in the life of God, asks us to come and participate. And in the process, God anticipates, God anticipates and expects that we can be grown toward Christ's capacity for mercy. So how merciful are you? It's a fair question, how merciful am I? And do those others, do those others that you have othered in your life, in my life, do they understand you? Do they understand me as merciful? Okay, okay. How do we get from here to there? Well, One of the more powerful things that we will ever do to get from here to there, we've not done now in 20 weeks. Next slide, Wes. We have to take communion. Now I say this to you every time we take communion, and I can't wait to say it again. (laughs) This is the bread taken, blessed, broken, and given And I hope that you will, I hope that I will, we will eat so much of this bread that at some point we understand ourselves to become the bread that is then, as Christ has been taken, blessed, broken, and given. Hear me say it again. There is a cumulative effect to receiving Eucharist, taking communion, Week in, week out, week in, week out. Sometimes you are into it and you are thinking about it and you are really like diving deep into the meaning of this Eucharistic moment. And other times you're just kind of going through the motions. But even then, God is present in all of the elements and all of the sacramental moments. There is a cumulative effect and God is actually growing you or moving you down the road toward that moment when you could wake up and say, maybe I do have a shot of being merciful, merciful as Christ is merciful. And I think there is a cumulative effect to not taking communion for 20 weeks. And so we're going to take communion. Now, at some point, we're going to get back to taking it every week. But to get back to taking it every week, you got to take it that first time again. And this is going to be our time. August 16th, 5 p.m., uh, Tamara and I and Zach are going to be here. We're going to have a giant Zoom call, giant Zoom call. Everybody knows what Zoom is, and we're going to have more, uh, more directions. We're going to tell everybody how we're going to do this. Now, the week prior to August 16th at 5 p.m., we're going to make the bread, the blessed bread, available to everyone. And you can come by and get it, or if you tell us, we'll have somebody bring it to you. But we want to have as many as 100 households, more if we can do it, all together, ready to take communion Somewhere around 5 p.m. on August the 16th. I'm t- I won't be able to make it through it. I'm just going to tell you right now. Because I know how desperately hungry I am for this resource that I know over a period of time can build me into something that I'm not. Right now, at least. We say this, too, around here. 
I, I want us, me, you, us, I want us to want the right things. But I think we are again in one of those moments where I think God is honored if we just want to want the right things. Perhaps in a Eucharistic moment, we'll feel our hearts warmed and moved and recognize that God is in that moment moving us toward mercy. Please mark your calendars. Again, we'll have some more directions and you'll have an opportunity to self-identify. Yep, my household will be a part of communion that night. Please let us know. You don't have to be in Oklahoma City. You don't have to be in Oklahoma. We are happy to welcome you from all over the world. We may not be able to get the bread to you in time, but we will do our best. And yes, you'll have to supply your own drink. (laughs) But please mark that in your calendars and protect that space and time like it's sacred. We are a people who recognize the value of sacred time and space. I'm ready to get back to those places and those times. But now it's time to pray. And I'm gonna start us off with the prayer of confession before turning you over to Lisa, who's gonna take us through prayers of intercession, petition. But I'd like to invite you to pray the prayer that I've been praying all week. God, who understands me as merciful? Maybe the better prayer is, God, who around me receives and senses your mercy through me? And if the answer is no one, that's a great time to pray a confessional prayer. God, move me to a better place. Let's pray. Merciful, merciful God. We confess that we have not always received and then demonstrated your mercy. Perhaps what needs to happen right now is we need you to help us to think back to the moment when you chased us down. That moment where we recognize that though you knew everything there was to know about us, that you still chose us, you still wrapped us up and claimed us. Remind us of those stories, those moments. Remind us, God, that as much as love was a part of that scenario and that situation, so was mercy. Remind us, God, that you are in fact a merciful God seen most clearly in the mercy embodied in cross and resurrection. And now, God, draw our minds and our imaginations to those people around us, perhaps the people that we have othered, because they don't believe the right way, because they don't behave the right way. Draw our minds and our imaginations to those people And God, we will give you this moment now to ask us what it is they sense and perceive in us. What it is about you that they sense and perceive through us. And now, church, in the silence, I would ask you to pray your own prayer of confession. If you have fallen short of divine mercy, as I have, 
Would you allow God to show you when and where and then how you might be able to move? prayed this prayer several times, but I hope you will hear these words as if for the first time tonight before I turn it over to Lisa. May the Almighty God have mercy on you, on me, on us, and forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life. Amen.